0: Oh, you all right, man?
1: Yeah, thanks. I've just been really sick the past week or so.
0: Oh, no. Did you catch COVID?
1: No, I tested myself multiple times, but every test came back negative. My symptoms were really bad, so I talked to my doctor. She told me I have the flu, whatever that is. Do you know anything about that?
0: I don't know a lot about the flu, but I think I know some people who do. Phil. I work as a microbiology grad student at Johns Hopkins University, and I'll be one of your two co-hosts on today's episode.
1: And I'm your co-host, Michael. I'm also a grad student at Johns Hopkins, where I study human decision-making. So, Phil, who are we talking with today?
0: Our first guest today is one of my fellow researchers in the microbiology department. Welcome to the show, Nico. Tell us a bit about yourself.
2: Hey, so I'm Nico Swanson. I'm a third-year PhD candidate in Andy Pakosch's lab. And my research is really focused on seasonal influenza. And so I look at the ways in which H1N1 changes as it circulates in the population. And how did you get into studying viruses? I've been interested in science uh, since I was a little kid. So I majored in biochemistry in undergrad. And it was after undergrad that I thought about ways that I could use science to advance the public more generally and public health appealed to me for that reason. I think viruses specifically are interesting because they're, they're just bizarre. They're super small. They come in all sorts of varieties and they really do pose a big public health risk and burden of disease. And so being able to figure out how viruses cause disease and where they come from is really important to preventing them.
0: Our first question. How long has influenza been around, and how did we first figure out what it actually is?
2: Yeah, so that's a great question, and it's actually a very difficult question to answer. So as long as there's recorded history, there are descriptions of pandemics, and some of those pandemics, even going back thousands of years, really match the description of flu pandemics. But it really wasn't until the birth of germ theory and modern microbiology that we were able to start studying pathogens. And so it wasn't until the end of the 19th century really, so 1890s, that people started to look at what was causing influenza. And so the first shot at that was someone thought that it might be a bacterium. We actually named that bacterium after influenza in error. And a couple of years later, it was actually discovered that there was actually a virus that caused influenza. And so they tested this by filtering infectious agent through a really, really fine filter that would catch all bacteria. And what passed through ended up still being able to infect animals. And so it was shown that it wasn't a bacteria that caused influenza, but it was something a lot smaller. And so the next phase in the quote unquote discovery of flu is really during the 1918 pandemic. And So this was a massive global pandemic that really jump started a lot of research into what was causing it and how can we fix it. And so that really proved that human influenza, in addition to animal influenza, was caused by something much smaller than a bacterium, later called the virus. Uh, And then in the next couple decades after 1918, it really started to pick up. And by the 1940s, we were able to have flu vaccines.
0: Wow. It's really amazing how scientists went from not even knowing exactly what causes flu to developing influenza vaccines in a span of just 30 or so years. Now, you mentioned that scientists first thought a bacteria was responsible. How long had scientists even known about bacteria and germs by 1918?
2: Right. Yeah. So germ theory really rose in prevalence in the 19th century and it kind of competed with these other theories of what caused disease one of these is miasma theory which is this idea that there are just bad things in the air um, bad air basically causing disease but germ theory won out in part due to well in large part due to some really clever experiments done by researchers in the 19th century but virology specifically is a little more complex to study because viruses are just so small And so bacteria you can see under a microscope for the most part. And it wasn't really until scientists started looking at these filterable agents, is what they called them, these things that pass through filters that are supposed to stop all bacteria. And when we saw that that still caused disease for certain diseases, the field of virology was born.
0: So these filtering experiments showed material that passes right through the filter that blocks bacteria can still cause illness in animals. First question Why were scientists trying to infect animals in the first place? And did they ever do these kinds of experiments on people?
2: Well, there are challenge experiments in animals and in humans. I can't speak to the historical use of challenge trials in humans. I'm sure it's been done for influenza. More recently, there are pretty rigorous standards for for when it's appropriate to use these, but we still do use intentional infection of humans to, to study influenza. But when you were first trying to characterize or identify, what pathogen is causing a disease, it's actually really important to do this step. And so you need to be able to isolate the disease-causing agent, whatever you think is causing this disease, and then prove that if you give that to an animal or a human, I guess, but if you give it to an animal, it will cause disease in that animal. And then that you can re-isolate that causative agent from that animal. So these are Koch's postulates, and it's a a process for identifying the causative agent of of a disease.
0: Well, thank you, Nico. That's a lot of great background for how we came to our essential modern-day understanding of the influenza virus and viruses in general. Now, let's move on to some practical knowledge. How does the flu spread from person to person?
2: Well, flu is one of these respiratory viruses. So along with the common cold, flu is spread by coughing, sneezing, inhaling the cough and sneeze of someone else that's infected, which is really a gross way to think about it. But really, When you talk or when you sneeze or when you cough, you produce all these microscopic particles, respiratory droplets or aerosols, and when you're sick, those droplets and aerosols contain active virus, and so if someone around you is unlucky enough to inhale those particles, they can get infected. Now, there's actually another way that flu spreads, and the current research indicates that it's not the most common mode of transmission, but if you're infected with the flu and you touch something, And then an uninfected person also touches that and then rubs their eyes or touches their mouth. They can also get infected that way. And so it does spread through surfaces as well, but mainly through the respiratory route.
0: On that topic, there was a lot of commentary and warnings from the CDC this past fall that flu rates were shooting up much earlier than the usual flu season, which is winter. But why is winter the, quote, usual flu season in the first place? Why don't we have summer flu seasons or why doesn't it
2: switch back and forth every year? That's a great question. And it it sounds like it should be an easy question to answer, but in reality, there's a lot that we still don't know about the seasonality of flu. So there are a lot of really good explanations. And I think in general, it's a combination of them. One is that the virus simply works better during the winter. So there are experiments that show that the virus spreads better when it's cold and when there's low humidity. And so in the summer when it's really hot out, and it's really muggy depending on where you are, the virus is just not able to spread or survive as long. There's this other idea that it's really human behavior that drives the seasonality of flu. And so in the winter, if you think about it, we we don't wanna be outside, it's cold, it's windy. We wanna be inside and so people congregate indoors and those situations are really good for the spread of respiratory viruses like influenza and the common cold as well. Now there's another idea that our immune systems are actually less strong in the winter because we're not exposed to the sun as much. And so we're not producing as much vitamin D. And so there could be this contribution of we're just, our immune system is not as good as it is in the summer too. I think there's probably a combination of all these factors at play, but we really can't pin down exactly how much of each factor is contributing to the seasonality. I should also point out, though, that in countries or regions near the equator, flu spreads year round, and it can actually spread more during monsoon season. And so it it points to this idea that it's not just the virus spreads better in the cold because in some places it spreads well in the rainy season. So I think there are a lot of factors at play here.
0: We've been discussing influenza so far as if it's only one type of virus, but there are multiple influenza viruses, correct?
2: With the cold, you have a really big breadth of different kinds of viruses that have really different kinds of structures and organization of their genes. Flu is all caused by influenza virus, but that isn't to say that it's only one influenza virus. And there are actually a lot of different kinds of influenza that circulate. So influenza A, B, C, and D all exist. A through C can cause infection in humans. And influenza A is really the the one that causes pandemics and big, big outbreaks of influenza. And you can even zoom in into influenza A specifically and break it down by H and N. You've probably heard of H1N1 or H3N2. These are designations of different kinds of influenza A viruses, and they're called H1 or H3 or N1 or N2 because of a couple different surface proteins on the virus. So there's something called a hemagglutinin protein and a neuraminidase protein, so H and N. And depending on what these proteins look like or slight variations in them cause some viruses to be labeled H1, N1 or some viruses to be labeled H3N2. And in general, they're recognized differently by our immune systems. And so that's why you can get H1N1 and still be susceptible to getting H3N2 because they're different enough looking that our immune system doesn't really protect against both by exposure to one.
0: And do these different types of influenza virus have different levels of severity when they infect people?
2: Yes, there are minor differences in severity between different subtypes of influenza. And there's certainly a big increase in severity if you get infected with a certain type of an animal influenza, for example. In general, the treatments target pretty conserved regions of the virus, by which I mean the treatments recognize pretty similar areas of the virus that are across different subtypes. But that isn't to say that there aren't differences that contribute to different outcomes potentially.
0: Thank you. Nico, our next question. What is the difference between flu and the common cold? And why does flu tend to make you so much more sick?
2: Yeah, so flu is generally a lot worse than getting the cold for a couple reasons. I think the first thing to point out is that flu is specifically caused by the influenza virus. But the common cold can be caused by a litany of different viruses. It can be caused by rhinoviruses, something called the respiratory syncytial virus, and also coronaviruses, seasonal coronaviruses that circulate and these viruses in general cause pretty mild infections, whereas influenza virus infection can cause more severe symptoms. Now, these symptoms are also usually faster onset for influenza than common cold, and so you can get a rapid onset fever within a day or two of getting infected with influenza, and more severe symptoms can also come on really fast too.
0: Can you tell us more about why we see these differences in disease course between flu and colds, and why flu can kill tens of thousands of Americans every year. Meanwhile, common cold, I don't think uh, we ascribe really any deaths to common cold each year.
2: I think it ties into just differences in which cells viruses like to infect, the course of a viral infection, and just differences in the viruses more generally. With influenza, the viruses like to bind to cells in your upper respiratory tract, but they can also bind to cells and infect cells lower down, even into your lungs sometimes. And what we think of when we think of getting infected with the flu, the symptoms that we're considering, like fever, like a runny nose, are actually our immune response to that infection. And so our body is raising our, our temperature to try and fight off that infection. Our runny nose is to try and flush out the virus. And severe symptoms and even death are can also be caused by the immune system overreacting. So if your body tries to fight off the virus and it doesn't succeed at first, it might overdo it a little bit. And when your body overdoes it, it can produce pretty significant symptoms and even death sometimes. There are some other ways that the virus can cause death too. One of the things that it does is weakens your immune system overall. And so if your immune system is busy fighting influenza, and in the meantime your immune response is damaging tissue in the lungs, that can open up the door to other infections. And so you might be fighting off influenza, your lungs are in rough shape, and some bacteria are able to get in there and cause a secondary bacterial infection. And those infections tend to be very severe, and so there is a significant risk of death when that happens. And so you can have an overactive immune response and you can also have secondary infections that cause a lot of morbidity and mortality in severe influenza.
0: Why is there this difference in severity between viruses that infect the upper versus the lower respiratory tract?
2: Yeah, so the upper respiratory tract is really this region right past your mouth. So as you inhale, the first several inches to maybe half a foot of the respiratory tract is your upper respiratory tract, right? And lower just means lower down into your body. So your lungs are really considered your lower respiratory tract. And in general, if a virus only infects your upper respiratory tract, it tends to be a milder infection. But when you start to get that lung involvement, it can be a lot more severe.
0: Now, speaking of different respiratory viruses... Uh, that all have different levels of severity. A particularly severe one that, of course, has taken up a lot of our attention these last few years is the virus that causes COVID-19, SARS-CoV-2. And we're going to have a separate episode dedicated to SARS-CoV-2 and COVID. But I bring it up because every time I see it mentioned in a headline these days, it's usually because there's some news that the virus has mutated into a new variant or sometimes two variants have recombined into a hybrid variant. Does all this variation and mutation and recombination, does this all happen with the influenza viruses as well?
2: Yeah, so that's a great question. And I think it talks about just the ways in which viruses can change and continue to infect people even after they've already been exposed once. And so influenza has a couple of different ways that it does this. And it's usually broken down into antigenic shift versus antigenic drift. Antigenic just refers to how the virus is recognized by our immune system. And so antigenic drift is this process by which the virus just accumulates mutations as it's circulating. And so this is why you need annual flu shots, right? So the virus that you saw two years ago when you got infected that your immune system mounted a response to has probably changed in the couple of intervening years and it's probably acquired a few mutations. And so it doesn't look exactly the same to our immune system as it did two years ago. that's contrasted with antigenic shift which is a, a more severe kind of change in how the virus appears to our immune system and when we think about pandemics what we're thinking about is antigenic shift because you have this virus from an animal that is completely different looking to our immune system than anything that's already circulating. And if it recombines with a virus that is able to infect humans already, that combined virus that has this new antigenicity looks different to our immune system, but now it also has the capability to infect humans. That's when you get antigenic shift and you get spillover into humans that causes pandemics. And one of the reasons that this happens with flu more than some other viruses is that the influenza virus contains different segments of its genome with different genes. And so what that means is if a cell is infected with two different viruses, the genes of influenza can kind of just shuffle around and it can produce a virus that has some genes from one virus and some genes from another virus. And when it combines to produce a virus that can infect humans, then you get pandemic viruses.
0: Thanks again, Nico. At this point, we've covered some differences between cold viruses and different types of influenza viruses. Two more terms that our listeners have probably encountered are swine flu and bird flu. Let's start with swine flu. Is this some kind of flu that you can only catch from a pig? And if that is the case, why was it such a big deal in 2009?
2: Yeah, sure. So... To take a step back influenza a specifically has the ability to infect a wide variety of animals influenza b infects maybe one or two different animals but influenza a infects dogs cats cows chickens pigs and so there are animal flus that pop up and they can be h1n1 h1n2 h2n3 all sorts of different combinations but these are viruses that tend to circulate within specific animals and so for swine flu The label swine flu is really kind of a catch-all term for any sort of influenza virus that prefers to infect pigs. And so in 2009, what we had happen was a particular virus, a particular influenza that was circulating in pigs, gained the ability to infect and spread between humans. And so you had what's known as a spillover event where this specific swine flu spilled over into humans and then started circulating in the population. And in fact, H1N1, which is the swine flu from 2009, continues to circulate today. And that's what causes part of our annual epidemic of influenza. So that's our seasonal flu. It's actually a remnant of that 2009 pandemic.
0: Is bird flu then essentially the same as swine flu, but from birds?
2: in general the virus that infects birds is pretty different than the virus infects humans bird flu tends not to replicate very well at all in humans and so it's even more rare that you'll get a bird flu infection in humans than a swine flu infection but there are situations that arise in which a bird flu either combines with a swine flu or just independently gains the ability to infect a human And when that happens, you can have a really novel kind of virus, which means a virus that's just hasn't been seen by our body before. And when it gains the ability to infect our body, it can cause a lot of damage because our immune system has no recognition of it. And that's what really causes pandemics. If you get a crossover of swine flu, of bird flu, or a combination of the two. So you're saying
0: that when influenza viruses from pigs and birds begin to infect human beings, it's particularly bad.
2: Yeah. So it's this idea that in general, these animal flus just aren't able to infect humans. But when they do, the rare situations when they do, it's usually a big deal because the entire population around the globe has no exposure to these viruses. And so that's why when one does spill over, like in 2009, you see this initial really big wave of a lot of people getting infected at once because no one has immunity to it. But then as the virus has been in the population for a while, it becomes less able to spread just because there are fewer people that have never seen it before. So there are fewer immune naive people. And so then you get a situation in which it started out as a pandemic, but it becomes a seasonal influenza. And that's what you see with H1N1 and H3N2. Mm
0: -hmm. Given all of that, let's say I come down with influenza. I've got the flu. Should I be avoiding my pets during this time that I'm sick? Could a flu virus spill back from me to a dog or a cat?
2: Yeah, so I think that's a, an important thing to consider. Again, the, the viruses that infect animals tend to be pretty different from the viruses that infect humans. And so it's really gonna be a rare occurrence that you get spillover from your pets to you or vice versa but that's not to say it's impossible. And so there are cases in which a feline influenza, for example, can cross over into humans. And in fact, in 2016, there was a case of a cat that got a bird flu, and then that cat spread the bird flu to a human. And so you do have these events where the flu is able to jump between hosts, um, but it it doesn't always cause a pandemic. It's a a really rare occurrence that it spills over and even more rare occurrence that it causes a pandemic. And you can also give your flu to your pet very rarely. So there are instances of dogs and cats getting H1N1,
1: which was traced back to human H1N1. And so
2: it's, it's possible, but it's very rare and unlikely.
1: Thank you, Phil and Nico. Now that we've had a chance to learn about the flu, let's tackle how we can protect ourselves against it. We've all probably heard of vaccines, especially now after all the recent COVID-19 vaccine rollouts. These and other vaccines are supposed to protect us from specific diseases and infections. But how do they do that? For this, we interviewed Cammy, a PhD candidate studying COVID-19. Hi, Cami. Welcome to the show. What do you do?
3: Uh, so I'm a PhD candidate in, in Niteko's lab um, with Niko. And we both study two different respiratory viruses. So I study the virus that causes COVID-19. And I'm really interested in what happens when immunocompromised people are infected for a long time.
1: And how did you become interested in virology?
3: Like Nico, I actually did an undergrad in biochemistry. And during the undergrad, I was trying to decide what to do next. And I attended a few lectures on infectious diseases. And it seemed like a really important field that was pretty understudied in comparison to other diseases that affect people, especially in the Western world. I, I was interested in a lot of different things in the microbiology field because of the massive amounts of people that become infected with these viruses. They become, like Nika mentioned, incredibly important public health threats. And yeah, viruses are also very, very interesting because they really just consist of a few proteins and some nucleic acid, and they manage to wreak such havoc on people and other animals.
1: Cool. All right, let's move on to our questions. Cami, I'm curious about what is in these vaccines that make them work. I know they at least contain the flu virus, but what else is in there?
3: So I'll start with the thing you first mentioned, which at least in my virologist opinion is the most important, which is actually the virus component. And so flu vaccines either contain killed or inactivated virus, viruses that are extremely attenuated so they can never result in influenza or disease itself. Or if it's a recombinant vaccine, um, it contains other components, protein components of the viruses. And so every year, a panel of experts actually comes together to decide which viruses are going to go into the flu vaccine. So there's four different viruses that go into the flu vaccine every year. Two are ones that we had heard Nico just mentioned. so H1N1 is one virus that goes in, as is H3N2, and they're both influenza A viruses. And there are two more viruses that go into it, which are both influenza B viruses. So it's kind of the main virus components, and they change slightly every year um, as we try and, in effect, catch up with the latest flu viruses that are out there to try and give the biggest form of um, protection that we can through the vaccine. So that's the flu virus component. Along with this, um, there's a number of other elements that go into a vaccine. So a lot of flu vaccines are actually made by growing viruses inside chicken eggs, which sounds like a very, very strange concept. It's been done like this a very long time. But what this means is this very well tested method has been used and there are some egg proteins which will be found in the flu vaccine. And this is why people with egg allergies definitely shouldn't get this form of flu vaccine, but now there are alternatives for them. Other things are going into a vaccine are preservatives. So we don't want to make a vaccine and then the vaccine not be functional in a few months after we've shipped it to wherever it needs to go. Um, and those preservatives are obviously well tested as well. Likewise, there are things called stabilizers, and which similar to preservatives will kind of keep a vaccine effective for use as a dose for longer. along with those things, there are a few other, I guess, elements that go into making sure, for example, the vaccine doesn't separate. So if we have a mixture of things in a liquid, we want to make sure that the mixture is maintained pretty well before the vaccine is given to a person. But actually, these chemicals are called emulsifiers, and we actually commonly eat those. So they're often found in, for example, mayonnaise and salad dressings. And again, these components are all being very, very well tested for safety before being given any form of vaccine.
1: So a vaccine is essentially a practice run for your immune system. Weakened or dead viruses can't do any real damage, but they look enough like the real thing to give your immune system experience in combating the real virus if you're ever exposed. What you said about chicken eggs reminded me of a Radiolab episode that talks about the history of vaccines and actually how we got to the point of using chicken eggs for vaccine development. We'll provide a link to that in the show notes in case anyone is interested. Now, we've discussed that there are multiple different types and subtypes of virus. Cammy and Nico, I'll open this question up to you if you'd like to answer. How do scientists pick which strains to include in the vaccine year to year?
2: There are four major circulating types of flu that cause seasonal influenza. So there are two influenza A viruses, H1N1 and H3N2. And there's also influenza B, which circulates usually to a lesser degree, but also does contribute to seasonal influenza. And so what the WHO does is recommend based on the strains that are circulating within each of those four influenza viruses. They recommend what composition of the flu vaccine we should have for the year. And so every season we get a new flu vaccine and very frequently it will be updated to have the most recent H1N1 strain in addition to the most recent H3N2 and the most recent influenza B as well. And so Every year, the WHO updates the formulation of the vaccine to include the updated forms of each of those four
1: viruses. But what about pandemics? None of us anticipated the COVID-19 pandemic, and I imagine previous pandemics were similarly unexpected. How do scientists and manufacturers respond to a sudden need for vaccines in these circumstances? The flu vaccine protects against seasonal influenza,
2: but because pandemic flu is so rare and Frequently, pretty unpredictable. We can't vaccinate against a potential future pandemic in our seasonal flu mix. And so we can make vaccines specific to a pandemic once it occurs. For example, in 2009, the CDC and other governments quickly made vaccines specific to that pandemic strain of influenza. But the other thing that we can do is stockpile vaccines for the most likely culprit. And so, for example, H5N1 doesn't infect humans yet. It's not spreading to the population yet, but it seems like the most likely culprit of a future pandemic. And so we're able to make them in advance, make the vaccines in advance, just so we're prepared if that does happen.
1: And with the COVID-19 pandemic, we developed a way to rapidly manufacture mRNA vaccines, which could change the math on how these stockpiles are created. But we'll save that topic for a future episode. Cami. Injected vaccines aren't the only way to introduce bits of the flu virus to your immune system. When I was younger, a lot of kids I knew would get a nasal spray version of the flu vaccine instead. What's that about? Is it different or better than the traditional injectable vaccine?
3: So the traditional, I guess, vaccine shot that we're thinking of that goes into the arm is one of the vaccines that contains the kind of killed or inactivated influenza subtype. The nasal vaccine is actually a bit different. A, in that it's kind of sprayed up the nose, but it also doesn't contain completely killed virus. It contains very, very weakened form of influenza virus. And so the idea is that through the administration up the nose, the influenza viruses can enter into cells as they would for the immune response can be generated. And so the reason you probably heard about this when you were younger is that this form of vaccine is more commonly administered to kids who don't like to receive shots. One thing to note about this vaccine, though, is that obviously, because it doesn't contain a completely killed virus, contains a very weakened form of the virus. It's not suitable for everyone. And so it's only recommended for people between the ages of two and 49.
1: So if I'm in the appropriate age range, and I'm not immunocompromised, should I get the nasal vaccine over the injected vaccine?
3: So actually, the CDC doesn't recommend the nasal vaccine or the shot over the other if you're healthy in between the ages of two and 49. Both are suitable.
1: I grew up with asthma, so I wasn't allowed to get the nasal spray version. I remember being quite jealous of my friends who didn't have to worry about needles come flu season, but it's good to know the differences stopped there and my friends didn't get an objectively better version of the vaccine. Continuing on with the theme of flu vaccine versions, I've heard that people over the age of 65 receive a different flu vaccine. How is it different and why?
3: All of the different types of flu vaccines available in one season contain the exact same mixture of viruses. So you're not getting a different mixture of viruses, depending on the type of flu vaccine you get. And there are actually three different types of flu vaccine that are available for those over 65, which are recommended over the ones that will be given to someone who is younger and immunocompetent. And so these vaccines are all basically designed to make sure that all the people are generating a strong immune response so that they have a good amount of immunity. And the three options are either a higher dose of common flu vaccine, which is more widely administered. So this higher dose vaccine contains a higher amount of the viruses that are dead and inactivated inside. A second type of vaccine which is available for people over 65 is what we call an adjuvanted vaccine. And adjuvants are designed to improve the strength of our immune response to a vaccine. And so for those over 65, it's basically meant to make sure that they are able to respond enough to have enough immunity. And the third type of flu vaccine, which is recommended for people over 65, is the recombinant flu vaccine, which I mentioned at the start, doesn't actually contain any intact flu virus, but contains segments of proteins which are made in cells during manufacturing.
1: Regardless of which type of flu vaccine you get, there are two things common to all of them they're temporary, which is why we should get them year to year, and they come with mild side effects. Starting with the first item, why do I have to get a flu vaccine every year when I get a vaccine for, say, tetanus every 10 years? Why can't a single flu vaccine do the job for my entire life?
3: There are two main reasons. Obviously, we know, as we've discussed already, that flu changes. So I'm not going to go into that further, apart from that we need to stay up to date with the most recent flu viruses. But another more important question that is why immunity in general differs between different vaccines. And so, as you mentioned, some vaccines like a shot will last for, for a decade versus a flu vaccine and flu vaccines are very interesting in that they actually give pretty short lasting immunity in general if you were to measure for example the levels of antibodies in response to a flu vaccine and this is definitely something that's been very widely researched in the flu field and the immunology field in general how can we produce a vaccine that gives a much longer lasting response And why is it that some vaccines actually induce these longer-lasting responses? And I think this is a very fundamental question in the field of immunology still and relates to how we form immunological memory.
1: It's definitely a very complicated question to answer. I suppose it could have to do with how often each kind of virus mutates, but who knows? We'll just have to see what the research says. And what about the second item? Whenever I get a flu shot, I usually feel some soreness in my jabbed arm for a day or two, and sometimes I get a headache. Come to think of it, I've experienced side effects from other vaccines, especially the ones for COVID. But the side effects I have are different from my friends. Why do we sometimes have side effects after getting vaccinated?
3: So side effects, for example, especially after a flu shot, mostly being caused by your immune response to the kind of foreign thing that's been introduced into your body. And we actually don't know that much about why, across the general population, different people experience different levels of side effects. There's definitely research currently being done into whether stronger side effects are associated with any different level of protection.
1: Okay, so we've talked about what the flu is and how vaccines can prepare our bodies to fight it. But vaccines, while currently the best way to keep us healthy, aren't the only methods humans have invented to fight flu, other viruses, and microbes in general. Most people are familiar with antibiotics, a common method for treating bacterial infections. Cami, can I use antibiotics to treat myself if I have the flu?
3: So antibiotics are definitely not the right treatment course for a flu. And so antibiotics in general are great at treating illnesses caused by bacteria. And as Nico mentioned, sometimes you get secondary bacterial infections after a flu infection. That's, slightly, that's a very different case. But in fact, it's very important that we make sure that antibiotics are being specifically used for bacteria so we don't support things like antibiotic resistance from occurring. It's also of note that if you take a course of antibiotics, you might actually feel other side effects, which could make make you feel worse. Um, So definitely don't take antibiotics unless given to you by a doctor.
1: Okay, so not only do antibiotics not work against the flu, they also make you feel worse, which probably isn't good for your body while it's fighting against the flu. Antibiotics should only be used to treat the specific bacterial infections that they were designed to treat. And if they're not, then we risk causing something called antibiotic resistance. I researched this a bit further and learned that this is actually a very scary thing. Bacteria can mutate and adapt like viruses. Importantly, bacteria can adapt to the treatments we use to destroy them. When they learn to fight off a treatment, they become resistant to it, effectively making that treatment useless for that particular type of bacteria. Cami, if antibiotics don't work, then what else can we use? I've heard about antivirals. What exactly are those?
3: So it's kind of in the name, antivirals work against viruses. And it's very important, again, that we use the right antiviral to treat an infection. And so flu-specific antivirals can help treat flu infection, especially if they're given to a patient within a few days of the patient becoming sick. Neuros are often used to treat those at higher risk of flu complications. So if you already have pre-existing health problems or you're older, it's potentially more likely that you'll be given these antivirals. I would also like to note that one antiviral doesn't work for another virus. So you can't take an influenza antiviral and then try and treat COVID-19 infections with the same antiviral. This is partly because antivirals will target a very specific part of a virus or the virus's life cycle. And so, for example, Tamiflu targets neuraminidase activity, for which the N stands for, and for example, H1N1, and that's a very specific component of the flu virus, versus Paxlovid, which is actually a mixture of two drugs and is used to treat COVID-19. Um, one of the two drugs in Paxlovid targets a protease found in coronaviruses, so using Paxlovid to treat flu infections is not a good idea.
1: One last question I have is about masking. We've all been masking as a means of reducing the spread of COVID-19, but does this practice also help us prevent the spread of the flu? Yeah, so there's a
2: lot of good evidence to suggest that mask wearing and social distancing really do reduce the spread of influenza in addition to COVID-19. A really great example of this is just looking at the spread of influenza during the COVID pandemic. And so seasonal influenza happens yearly in the fall for the northern hemisphere. But if you look at the trend in 2020 and 2021, we see a huge reduction in circulating influenza. It was almost non-existent for a little over a year. And we didn't do anything specifically for influenza that would have caused that. I mean, We had annual vaccinations, that's about it. But what was different is everybody was staying in their home because of COVID-19, people were wearing masks. And so this speaks to the idea that just by doing these social distancing and mask wearing measures, we can reduce the spread of influenza as well.
1: Thank you for answering that question. And thank you both so much for coming on the show. Are there any specific tips you think our listeners should take away from today to ensure they stay healthy during flu season?
3: So one that we definitely like to add is that if you haven't received a flu vaccine yet this season, um, and you can find one, it is a good idea to do so um, because it can protect you for the rest of the flu season.
2: Yeah, and I think it's especially important this year because the flu season is looking pretty rough. It's it's pretty big, big in comparison to past seasons. And so it's extra important to just get the vaccination if you haven't already. Stay protected. And if you feel like you're developing symptoms, make sure to go to a doctor and get tested. And even if you don't have SARS-CoV-2, you should still isolate if you have influenza. It's worth protecting your friends and your family by waiting until the disease passes and then going back out.
1: Got it. We'll be sure to include any and all resources you provided in the show notes for our listeners. Cammy and Nico, again, thank you so much for coming on the show.
3: Yeah, thanks again, it was great.
1: Yeah, it was great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Wow, you know, Phil, I thought today was going to be pretty cut and dry. I've heard about the flu so much throughout my life that I was pretty surprised by all the things I didn't know about it. For instance, I didn't know that the virus for the vaccines are grown in chicken eggs. What did you take away from today's episode?
0: I really enjoyed listening to Nico talk about how scientists first discovered viruses and determined what was causing the 1918 pandemic in an age well before we had electron microscopes that could actually see the viruses or do something like take a PCR test. In fact, I looked further into those 1918 animal and human challenge trials and learned about a series of experiments run on volunteers from a prison in exchange for full pardons, which, by the way... Is very very illegal to do today kind of pushes the boundaries of what we consider a volunteer but in this set of experiments the US Navy took these prisoners and had them sit and talk right in the face to patients deeply sick with flu even being directly coughed on by these patients and being told to breathe in the cough as they were uh, in these conversations luckily for these prisoners none of them caught the flu from these experiments And they all received their pardons. Why they didn't get sick remains a real mystery. Personally, I would guess that all of these prisoner volunteers had probably already been infected with the flu virus earlier that year, with very mild or no symptoms, and were immune by the time of the experiments. Since at that time, again, there were no PCR tests, there were no antibody tests, doctors would have been very limited in knowing who was susceptible uh, or not to getting infected with the influenza that was going around. If you want to learn more about this experiment and other similar early experiments in the natural history of the 1918 influenza, I learned about this experiment from Flu by Gina Collada. We'll link this book and more resources in the show notes.
1: That'll do it for this episode of the Seymour Podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. Again, you can find resources for everything we talked about today in the show notes, If you have more questions for Kami and Nico, we'll provide their contact info in the show notes as well. Next time, we'll take a break from virology and discuss the science behind sports injuries and treatments, just in time for the Super Bowl. After that, we'll return to the world of virology with an episode on COVID-19, specifically its impact on vulnerable populations. So send us any questions you have about that. Speaking of questions, each month we select one person who submitted a question to win a prize, currently a $5 Amazon card. This month's winner is a Redditor called The Waxies Dargle, who asked a question for our upcoming episode on Recreational Marijuana in Maryland. If you want to win a prize, then submit a question. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support the show and Project Bridge, our parent organization, then share it with your friends and on social media. You can find us on many platforms, including Instagram at Cymor underscore podcast, Twitter, at P, Reddit, at Symor underscore Podcast, and our page on Facebook. If you have a science question you want answered, you can contact us on social media or through our email, which is cymore.podcast at gmail.com. See you later.